Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, a network for early career researchers. Hello again, I'm Adam Smith and today I'm uh, hosting this special podcast recording from day two of the Alzheimer's Association International Conference currently taking place in Los Angeles. And for those who didn't already listen to yesterday's, which is day one, today's day two, honestly, it's conference, isn't it? You lose track of days. Today's day two, uh, and you'll be listening to this when we're at day three. So uh, if you didn't listen yesterday, we're recording every day from the conference, sharing news and the highlights from the conference, particularly with everybody who couldn't uh, manage to make it uh, today. And today I'm joined by, do you know what, I'm going to attempt it. I'm going to have a go. (laughs) Rihanna. (laughs) McArdle from Newcastle University. Some of you will remember uh, Ree from last year. Uh, I'm also joined by first-timers, Dr. Astrid Sukidaisi from Washington State University (laughs) and Dr. Sara Imaracio from Alzheimer's Research UK. Uh, And you're the research manager there. Uh, Anyway, we'll do that next. So hello, everybody. Thank you very much for joining us today. Um, Can we start with a little roundtable so you can introduce yourselves and maybe uh, introduce yourselves, tell us a little bit about your work. Um, So Ree, you can go first. Yeah, so hi, um, as Adam said, my name is Rihanna McArdle. Um, I'm a research associate in the Brain and Movement Research Group in Newcastle University. And my key research interests are looking at gait analysis and the use of wearable technology for both the differential diagnosis support of different dementia subtypes, especially Lewy body dementias, and also just understanding how dementia can impact a person's daily living. Fantastic. Thanks, Rhi. And um, Astrid? Hi, yes, uh, I'm Astrid Suki-Dicey, as Adam said, and um, I'm a neuroepidemiologist uh, with Washington State University's uh, new Elson S. Floyd College of Medicine, um, which is located in Spokane, but I'm actually located in Seattle. And uh, I study uh, neurodegenerative disease and vascular brain injury in American Indian populations. Fantastic. And I'll talk in American. We've been keen to have more people from outside of the UK join us. So thank you very much. Yes, I'm an American. <laughs> and we should add, we did just grab you off the off the conference floor one day yesterday and persuade you into doing it. So thank you ever so much, though, Astrid, for joining us. And uh, Sara. So my name is Sari Marizio, and I am the head of strategic initiative in Alzheimer's Research UK. My role in the charity is to overlook Uh, strategic initiatives that include the UK Dementia um, Research Institute as well as the Drug Discovery Alliance and then I'm in charge of running the annual scientific conference of Alzheimer's Research UK. Plus I am responsible of the researcher engagement and this is why I am here at AIC. Engaging with the researchers? Yes. (laughs) Does that include persuading them that the UK is a great place to work and and encouraging all those ECRs from the US and elsewhere to come to the UK? Correct, yes. So what what I found, it was very interesting at this conference, at the moment it was pointed out by Maria Carillo, was that she was saying that actually every session has a mix of senior and early career researcher presenting and in such a big conference I think it's very important to give voice to the new generation. And yesterday she was mentioning that actually they have increased of four times the Dementia Research Fund for a project to support basic research. 
And I found that that was amazing because obviously UK is quite behind in that case. And while we are good in thinking it is important to increase capacity, for me now the problem is making sure that we increase capacity, but we retain the capacity that we have created. And so as a charity, we are investing a lot of effort in making sure that the government is buying in, in the importance of funding more with this 1% campaign, where we would like to support more dementia research. So I think that this conference is a huge platform that is kind of showing that we are on the right track in UK. So it would be fantastic to have more US scientists either applying to UK funding or actually moving to UK or creating collaboration with UK scientists. And we, so should we have to get a plug in now for Alzheimer's Research UK. Do do yeah. have funding opportunities? Do you have so are yours open right now? Your calls or are they just closed? The they're just closed round? and they're going to be open soon. I think at the at the end of July. So and we list all those on our website as well at dementiaresearch.nihr.ac.uk. So just come to our website first, and you can get all the information on funding from there and from Alzheimer's Society as well, and from the NIHR and other places for anybody that's listening overseas, which we know that. I don't know, more than 50% of our listeners aren't in the UK, so that's always always good. So what were we going to talk about first? Um, should we start, what about last night's welcoming re- welcome reception, which was fantastic, right? Yeah. I, I mean, there must have been so much work in going into organising that. For, for those who didn't know, it was at uh, Universal Studios. 4,000 people? 4,000 attended in the end, wow. And they all had to get coached from their hotels to the to the place, which explains the, the, the queues were long, yeah. right? <laughs> they were yeah, big queues. Yeah, I heard that they were over 100 minutes long near closing. <laughs> Wait, what do you mean you've heard? You didn't go. No, I didn't, but I got reports. <laughs> you didn't go. <laughs> I didn't. You know, there was free, free food and drinks and I Harry know. Potter rides. I know. Well, free it was <laughs> I have a lot of friends in LA and I am trying to squeeze in seeing them as well. So I chose to go have dinner with them. I won't but lie, I it sounds like I missed Harry out Potter on a good time. Friends, yeah. so. <laughs> I know, perhaps I missed out. I missed the Jurassic World ride, which yeah. sounded epic. So did, did, did you did all the rides, Rhi? I know you did all the... I did the Harry Potter rides. Um, I didn't do many of the others because we queued for quite a while to get into the Harry Potter rides. But I got to do the virtual reality, which you did, um, yeah. on the broomstick. And oh, that really? was amazing. Yeah, I felt like I was actually on a broomstick. I was very creeped out by it, but it, like incredibly in love with it at the same time i'm a big fan of those vr kind of those those vr games over real roller coasters i know they make you feel the same way but i'm not a big fan of i yeah I, rides. Did, I did i love roller coasters but i did actually prefer it to the hippogriff ride that they had because it was um a bit more scary i think than the hippogriff one the only thing that was scary with the hippogriff one was the the um barriers popping off on me um <laughs> right before I started and they were like oh if that happens just hold it down and then it just started and I was like oh my god I'm gonna fall out of this and die but it was fine well I think we all had a lot of fun last night and uh, really well done to the Alzheimer's Association for organizing that um it it really must have been a bit of an epic undertaking just to organize that let alone this huge conference which I gather has got more than 5,000 people attending this year and once again more than 50% of the people here are female uh, researchers which is fantastic I did a tweet earlier saying that that's great we just need to retain more because right. I think you can't help but notice that the the older people here are all men and yeah. the younger people are mostly women so we need to make sure that you're still coming to this conference in 10 years time yeah. 
um, which is the challenge. But I think that's more to do with career structures and how they need to be organised to, to enable that, mm. particularly in universities. Um, okay, so shall we start then by talking about your own presentations? I guess, Sarah, you haven't presented no. while you've been here, but Astrid, you have? No, I'm actually here just to soak up Talks. You've not been presented. I haven't presented. But Ri, I know you've, I like you've been presenting. I I I should have paid more attention to She's my notes. She's making up for the rest of us. Um, yeah, I presented. I had an oral presentation at the technology pre-conference, which is one of my favourite parts of AIC and is probably one of the most helpful parts to me. Um, and I've had a poster yesterday and today as well my phd research so what were you what were your posters today about uh my poster today was looking at the use of wearable technology to differentiate different dementia subtypes and also about where we assess um gait with the technology so if you assess it in the clinic what does that tell you in comparison to if you assess it in a person's own home and community environment and it just addressed some of the challenges that we still have to face with the use of wearable technology in order to translate that research back into a clinical environment. Do you, do, do you use Git in your work, Astrid? Uh, I would like to actually. Um, we're struggling a little bit with uh, figuring out how to diagnose um, cognitive impairment and uh, Alzheimer's and vascular dementias um, in American Indians and other uh, underserved racial ethnic minorities. Um, particularly because a lot of the validated cognitive assessments um, are not necessarily validated for other cultural and linguistic groups. Yeah, yeah. And so we're looking for kind of cultural neutral measures. Um, I think GATE is a really exciting one. You know, wearables seem pretty... Um, promising yeah yeah, yeah. Um, obviously it's not necessarily I, I can't think of a way that culture would really <laughs> influence gate but maybe you can tell me I mean well, maybe I, back to the types of professions that people have done as a the kind of jobs that they've done whether they've been manual workers or office workers does that make a difference to gate um, I mean I'm not, I'm not sure of the research on that I think there is there is differences between for example men and women and I know that there is differences between countries and things that would be accepted as like a normal gate speed mm -hmm. so in some countries that could be slower than in other countries and so things kind of have to be um, stratified towards that and you have to understand that when you're doing it at the moment we're still really in the kind of stages where we're taking big groups and just trying to find out do they look different from each other rather than that like individual um, level which I think we talked about yes in the plenary session as well they talked similarly about other kind of biomarkers and how that's still at a group level rather than an individual yeah. level um, so it's kind of work from everyone but I would say that one of the good things with GATE um, in using it as a complementary supportive marker for a diagnosis is that it is that kind of thing you know it it it's not dependent on language um, it is just a person walking um, and as long as they they have the ability to still walk then that's it's yeah. it's useful yeah, of course, um, so does yeah. that focus then at the moment on differentiating diagnosis assuming that they've got a diagnosis in the first place rather than being a, a point to say you must have cognitive impairment because of your gait so there's two kind of different tracks of this going on at the moment. Um, the work that I did followed on from a large body of work that looked at kind of longitudinal progression studies, monitoring things like gait speed and seeing that it, as it slowed down, how that correlated to people going on to develop diagnosis of dementia. Um, and basically it found that it could be predictive of dementia up to like 12 years beforehand. 
What I did with my own study was I took people who had established cognitive impairment due to different disease subtypes because you need to get it in the established impairment groups in order to find the signature of gait impairment that's specific to those groups and then work backwards to try to find out can we also get that in people before they have developed dementia and are we seeing a very like a, a pattern that's Lewy body dementia coming out years before Lewy body dementia is diagnosable. Um, so it's still really in the kind of early stages, but it's certainly getting promising results from my own PhD. So hopefully it will begin to uh, pick up a bit of traction now. I have two questions. Can I ask? Yeah, of course. Please do so. I wanted to ask you, like, um, is your study part of a more combinatorial study? So looking at the gate, you are going to sum this result to other results that are kind of look for in this core that you were studying? So were you looking at, like... uh, um, the level of cholesterol or like the alcohol intake or the social activities, the lifestyle of a person. So that then you have gait plus. Plus other things. Yeah. So what we did, the, the key aim of my study was to find out if there was differences in gait impairment. So it was completely kind of set up to look at that. And we looked at um, a large battery of cognitive testing within mm-hmm. that as well, because we wanted to understand the relationship between cognition and gait. With the wearable technology, we could also look at the gate in the home, but we could look at the habitual activities in the home, okay. which could give us a little bit of information about some lifestyle factors. For example, how much a person is actually moving during the day and also the pattern of what that looks like. Are they changing their walking behaviours throughout the day? Are they mainly taking short bursts of walking rather than long bursts of walking? And I've had a bit of a look at that as well to try to understand what factors might be contributing to that. Um, It wasn't a study really set up to look at lifestyle factors, though, and I would be very interested in understanding that further, particularly, I think, kind of about how people's support systems and their own home environments are perhaps affecting um, certain aspects of either how they deal with the disease or how the disease is progressing for them Mm -hmm. and how that might be impacting on their gait and habitual activity. That's very interesting. And how people receive your talk? Like, did you notice that? A lot of people were interested about the technology, gave a lot of value to the technology. Yeah, I would say um, I think that I got good interest for it. To be honest, I've been I've been at a few conferences recently um, and I've had a few talks at them. And the, the research is certainly getting a lot more interest this year than I've noticed it previously getting. Um, and that's coming at a good time because I've got good results that have now come out from the PhD that will be getting published soon. Um, so I think people are beginning to listen to it and now we just have to try to make it better, basically get the research to a better level and get the kind of technology um, ready for clinical use and see if we can actually get clinicians to take this into their clinics and try to use it as yeah. a differential support. I think people seem more comfortable as well with the idea of using wearable technologies to collect that kind of anonymized health data more so than I've just seen a a talk earlier where they were talking about the ethics around capturing data through mm. these more subtle devices like people talking to their phones and recording mm. people in um, yeah. on cameras and things like that when they might not be there because it's it's something that you're wearing it's a constant reminder although of course if you were doing this over the long term you can understand how reassessing consent as you move your way through has to be considered yeah. Although they remove their consent. We were talking about this last night, weren't we? They yeah. can remove their consent by taking it off. Yes, it's true. It's true. Just but this is the advantage of the wearable technology, no? Because mm. if you don't want to do it anymore, you just remove it and you Well, because the real interesting thing, I think, is 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 going about this another way, which is, you know, people of our age, as I look around the room, 
not all no. my age, I'm old. Exactly, I mean, two You've of us at least are wearing us. smartwatches. Yeah. What's really going to be interesting is the data that we're contributing now, Yes. Uh, actually, I in agree. in a few years' time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a massive amount of data, too. I don't mm. even know what to do with all of it. I just kind of look at my watch, and I, it's overwhelming. And we, we've <laughs> seen that. I, I know that I've uh, talked about for a long time about using things like loyalty card data mm-hmm. from supermarkets and things like that to see what you what you buy and shopping habits and how that could have had mm-hmm. an effect. So fantastic! That's yeah. really interesting. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. very much. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> yes. And well done. For, yeah, two posters and a talk. Yeah, good yeah. job yeah. making up for the rest of us. <laughs> Justifying <laughs> the funding there as well. Um, okay. <laughs> So let's move on to the big topics of the day. So uh, thinking about the big topics today, um, I've made a few notes here. So sleep um, has been the the main topic today um, and the potential for for sleep uh, disorders to be a risk factor. Uh, and making a case for why that should be the case. Uh, there was, I think they also played up the, the, the blood biomarker presentation was a big talk of the day, but having attended it, I, I, there wasn't any new data there, was it? It was bringing up to speed on what we might have already just read in the ALS forum only, only a, what was that, about six, eight weeks ago that there was that was out there. Uh, stress granules have been talked about as now, but I feel really bad. We might have to talk about stress granules tomorrow because when uh, Robin is joining us tomorrow from Alzheimer's Research UK because I know he's attending that talk and that's happening while we're actually recording so we probably can't talk but I think we're all fascinated to know what stress granules are because did anybody know what had heard that term before you came to the conference no no um, I, I noticed as well the themes on the posters. There were uh, white matter, neuroinflammation was all was all in the, these are topics that have been uh, highly mm-hmm. talked about in years gone by. But I haven't seen. I don't know. I, I haven't managed to make any talks on those today. Um, so we'll we'll talk. Let's talk about the sleep one first. There is uh, another thing to mention that you you talked about Maria Carrillo little talk early that she. She also mentioned that there's going to be a satellite symposium in Greece in 2020, which is quite interesting in their work to try and to spread out and engage other countries in this, and a special Global Tau 2020 conference. Mm-hmm. That sounds exciting, doesn't it? <laughs> global Tau 2020 conference in uh, Washington in February. Um, so I'm sure if you go to the Alzheimer's Association's website, there'll be more information mm-hmm. now to get involved in those. They're, they're recommending people book early for the Tau conference because there won't be many places. It'll be quite small as their first time, but they are planning to repeat it. Um, Okay, so the sleep talk was uh, Ruth Benker from uh, University of California, um, and and essentially she'd been looking at the risk factors and felt that sleep should should be included in amongst those. So what what did what did you think, Astrid, what did you think of the sleep? Well, I, you know, I thought that the sleep talk was really interesting. Um, I thought it was I thought that the EEG data that she was using was cool, that she had stratified her um, study population by age and was showing that older age groups had um, clearly different patterns, you know, with her imaging um, and the analysis that she did. And um, it seemed like a lot of association type analysis. You know, I wasn't sure about the clinical implications exactly. Um, that might have been a little over my head or maybe, um, you know, that you know, is, has still yet to be fully, uh, fleshed out. Yeah. Yeah, But I think the associations seem to be there. Um, you know, what the mechanism is, is, 
uh, not clear to me, you know, whether it's um, this sort of vascular dilatation and flushing of whatever solutes you might be carrying in your in your blood, or if there's some other mechanism of um, risk that, uh, you know, sleep is otherwise beneficial for. Um, I did get the sense that, you know, we're all kind of in trouble if <laughs> it's like, because she was saying less than seven to eight mm. hours is a risk. Yeah. That was really, <laughs> so that I thought, was really well, specific yeah. though, because it was <laughs> that less than seven to eight hours was a risk, but anything over eight hours was also a risk. Exactly. So you literally have to sleep for seven to eight hours. And then that wasn't just on dementia, right? That was on health as a whole. Yeah. That was on, on also right. like yeah. cardiovascular. Um, I don't think know. I ever get seven hours. That could be reverse yeah. causation too, because people that sleep a lot might be you know trying to deal with something i i saw that it there, is associated it seems with like, other disorders it's exactly not like depression and you know and so, i thought yeah. that was probably true of the pharmacological association she was sharing she was saying you know some of these um antipsychotics and i think that like benzodiazepine was one of them um that she was showing that there was um, a risk from the, or an association, a negative association, but I thought that could be confounding by indication, you know, mm. that there could be. I mean, I mean, coming back to basics, I thought it was interesting to say, you know, we know that older people get less sleep than, yeah. and, and as you gradually got older, you do sleep less, and that the, there were lots of, there were lots of causes for that, weren't they? I'd, in my notes here around, you know, things like, but there's also a few, you know, insomnia being one, but then there's about three posters as well in insomnia. There's a poster from somebody in South Korea looking at uh, relationships between insomnia and dementia as well. And sleep apnea. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. sleep apnea. And, the yeah. and also as well, the speed of progression, because mm -hmm. they measured that in a nursing home and how much time, I would imagine actually by the time you get to nursing home, lots of people were sleeping for a long time because, mm -hmm. well, but I suppose issue. I guess it like depends on then on the quality of their sleep in the nursing home if they're having you well, know short naps and they're not getting into an actual deep exactly. quality. And but that can be a symptom too. That's yeah. not necessarily a cause or a risk. Yeah. It can also you know be a sequelae. There's, there, there was a point that not only do we get less sleep as we get older, we also get less yeah. REM yeah. sleep. Yeah. yeah. Um, and taking longer to fall asleep, mm. having more naps, mm. waking up more often are all contributing to factors. But you made a good point when we were talking about this before, Sarah, about, and that's, the, I'm glad it wasn't just me, because what I couldn't understand was whether um, what she was seeing was a cause a consequence of dementia or or a cause yeah i really like the way she presented the old story around sleep and i think it was quite robust i really like the methodology that she was using the way she was stratifying but at the end of it i didn't really buy that is a risk factor i thought that is still unknown whether it's is link obviously any any she proved it is obviously link and there are many similarities in having apnea disorders with uh, dementia and etc but like she didn't really focus on it's a cause or a consequence of the disease mm. is that you where this is that where i mean this is slightly over my head but is that where the f these frontal fast spindles come into to play because you saw that there are age-related loss of front frontal fast spindles and people with AD have the same issue but they also have increased loss of internal spindles yeah, posterior, um, posterior no? yes, yeah. Yeah, and so whether that that makes any difference but yeah. I don't know it was it was really it was it was really interesting yeah. um that what the so what were the takeaways in the end I've got my notes here say that the she seemed to suggest that sleep 
has a relationship between those that develop dementia and sleep problems. But we know also because if you look at the circadian rhythm, I think that the old pattern of sleeping and the circadian rhythm is disturbing people with dementia and the consequences. Yeah, she, no, said that, she said that they become more like night owls as they uh, continue into the dementia phases in Alzheimer's disease. It would be interesting to see what that looks like in other types of dementia as, as well, well and yeah. see if it maps on or if it mm. looks different and if that's showing some kind of different yeah. behavior as well. She talked about the, the circadian rhythms as well, but a uh, clock rather, and that was obviously an issue, but she didn't go into the detail. No, she no, purposely yeah. kind of and also it would be nice to see whether if you start looking at people, if at some point we will be able to look at early sign of dementia. Yeah. Whether at that point you can make a correlation between the two. So was your lack of sleep or your difficulties of sleeping a yeah. first sign of dementia? I guess that'd be like longitudinal work, wouldn't no. it, for yeah. drama populations? Yeah. And then, then she, I mean, her recommendation at the end was to look at what interventions, although I think that, I mean, we were talking about this before, there are already lots of interventions exactly. to improve sleep but problems, aren't they? Because this is a. though, isn't it, really? Because you can tell, like, you could tell me that I shouldn't watch TV right before I go to bed, but I'm still going to do it. Mm. That's <laughs> sleep hygiene. Yeah. 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 But you could do cognitive behavioral therapy. Well, that's what she suggested, yeah. wasn't yeah. it? She basically yeah. said, like, do not take drugs and just yes. get right. some CBT. <laughs> yeah. Skip the benzodiazepines. <laughs> so finding yeah. the right interventions and also, as well, when to apply them, um, yeah. which was important. Is yeah. it, when is the right mm-hmm. time? Yes. Is it in your. You know, is this a habit mm-hmm. that you can form early on in life and then stick with, or do you apply it in? Is middle age too late? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was that was a really interesting yeah. talk. That was the hot topic of mm-hmm. today. We we mentioned before, obviously, Professor Kim from Seoul National University's talk. Um, the I have to I, say, I was I'm actually pretty excited about the blood-based biomarkers. I I know that you were feeling no 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 like, I was no. I wasn't trying to watch over it. I, I have to say, I found the <laughs> the echo in the room was quite hard to pick up on, and the slides yeah. coloring made it quite hard. I know. For me to follow. I think that the topic is very very interesting, and I think he gave again a very mm-hmm. nice review of the literature mm-hmm. from the 1980s to today. I think that he didn't present the data that are really outstanding, but I think mm-hmm. that probably in the different panel today, these topics were discussed more in, in depth. Yeah, probably, so. yeah. I, I, I think it's been a topic that's come up over and over in this conference, though, yesterday and yeah. today, you know, and I think probably it will tomorrow as well. I just keep seen people talking about it i actually came early specifically for um, a workshop on uh, friday on the topic and i i I learned a lot um and i thought that was pretty neat you know there were a lot of people here to present and so maybe i'm a little bit biased (laughs) because it's what i'm thinking about but you know i'd like i think it's very important yeah it's very interesting yeah it's a topic to develop yeah 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 well and it, it gets back to that um sort of objective markers of you know, dementia and maybe specifically Alzheimer's type dementia that we were talking about, Reed, that, you know, we, I need, I need measures that are more culturally objective. I think a lot of people need, you know, the the more measures you have, maybe the better. I think Um, it'll be good to see with all of the kind of biomarkers that are coming out, mm -hmm, what's the best combination and within that as well, what's the most cost effective um, yes. yes. combination that yeah. can give you yes. the best accuracy. Yeah. Uh, cost effective and, and I think it as well uh, practically applicable, particularly yes. if we're yeah. thinking about, you know, like in healthcare and, and in the NHS well, for screening, in the UK. Yeah, you can't screen people using PET imaging or no. CSF. So that's, like, that's one of the thing, 
things with our research that maybe the blood biomarkers if they're if they're more cost effective to do mm -hmm. would be useful for as well um with the gait analysis we often say it's like a pre-screening tool for telling you mm -hmm. to go get you know more accurate biomarkers um and that's because it's going to cost less to do a gait sure. assessment than it is for you to go and get a pet scan done yeah. for sure and so um doctors aren't going to just send everyone off for a scan but they yeah. might send everyone off for a blood test or right. for uh for so a gait test but it's good to know that there is an appetite because obviously people start realizing that there, are, there is hope in these uh, blood biomarkers. We just have to optimize and to minimize the background signal that you can get from yeah. this blood. Yeah, well, and um, develop understanding of what the limits are and to utilize, the know the, what those limits are in yeah. clinic, you know, keep, keep those in mind. Uh, it is a screening measure. It's not necessarily a diagnostic no, measure or a hard diagnostic, you know. It, yeah, and, and he said that they were, so their ultimate aim was to have an 80% accuracy rate from that, from the Yes. From that. And I, I can't help but think we talked about this yesterday on biomarkers, whether actually what you're going to end up with is, is back to that combination. It yes. won't be mm -hmm. a single thing. It'll be you can increase accuracy from, I don't know what percentage accuracy they're at at the moment, but, you know. I think it was 0.8 with the cerebrospinal fluid combination mm. that she presented on yesterday. But I think it'll be a toolbox. Of yeah. No, I think it'll have to yeah. be the positive and negative predictive values yeah. for, you know, an 0.8 sensitivity or specificities, you know, not but that But then great. That, that comes back to that same argument then about what's the benefit of that diagnosis. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, yes, uh, yeah. spending the money on that and, and giving that. Yeah. Now, you can understand if there are treatments out there and yeah. you want to give the right treatment to the right people or if you're looking for research participants right. and you want the right people yeah. for your trial. But actually, are the care interventions there does it really make any difference too much because the same treatment you're going to get in terms of care and support is the same whether it's you know a milder or more severe form of alzheimer's or whether it's ftd mm. as opposed to i would argue that if you've got different types of dementia that this will both obviously affect the drug studies that go on if you've got you know an alzheimer's disease group but actually half of that alzheimer's disease group or a third of that alzheimer's disease group have got dementia at low bodies and your drug treatment doesn't work because it's it's yeah. masked to the effect you, but got i would treatments. also say that for care and prognosis the kind of dementia you have will progress at a different rate and will have different symptoms at a different rate that might need to be managed differently. I so I think that for the management techniques, you do need to know what type of disease yeah. a person has got. Um, so I think that having a differential diagnosis will still be useful. I would also say differential diagnosis, although we don't have drug treatments that we can give people that are, you know, going to going to stop the disease there is drug treatments that certain diseases like dementia with Lewy bodies are very sensitive to so you wouldn't ever give them those and you don't want to find out someone has got a disease like dementia with Lewy bodies by giving them an antipsychotic drug and making them much worse yeah absolutely. so it's to kind of prevent things well, like when, that happening. when we're starting to look back you know as so often now with the longitudinal studies when we're looking back over lifestyle and the different mm -hmm. factors that we're doing knowing exactly what what mm -hmm. it is you do have now with the right sensitivity and biomarkers is important then because we can answer those questions yeah. moving backwards okay um so we're we're really getting shot tight on time already and i haven't asked you yet about the talks that you saw uh that particularly interested you over and above your own talks and the highlights so sarah was there anything particular that you wanted to highlight that that's interested you today 
Yes, so I've been choose to two series of talk. The one in the morning that really interested me was preclinical drug discovery for sporadic Alzheimer's disease, biological pathways, and mainly the various talks started from the genetic components, so what we learned from the genome-wide studies and uh, the discovery of new genes that highlight new pathways involved in uh, causing the pathologies. And one of the talk uh, was from uh, Jessica Young, and she talked about the role of SORL1. So she, stud she studies the um, role of the early endosome pathway in causing the pathology. So she gave a very good overview on how important it is to look at the early endosome uh, pathway in order to understand better the pathology and what are the implications in increasing the pathology and the accumulation of EBITDA. So she gave a very interesting... Do, do you know where she was from? Or was that in your notes? if people want to look her up. Yes, she was from the University of Washington and uh, she's working on uh, IPS cell derived from uh, human-induced uh, IPS cell, um, both as a two-dimensional, let's say, as well as an organoid. And um, so she gave a really, really a, over, a nice overview, probably because I'm really attached to the to the idea, idea that actually the endosome is playing a major factor in uh, causing accumulation inside the cell and mm. how the dysfunction of the endosome could have an implication. And she saw, she showed very neatly that actually the phenotype that you have with SORL1 uh, deficiency is resembling very much what you, what you see in Alzheimer's disease. So there is obviously a similarity between the two pathways. Another interesting talk was again correlating um, what was identified in the GWAS, so in particular, sorry, the lipid metabolism. And so this guy is Rick van der Kant, and he was talking about how cholesterol, cholesterol ester is actually implicated in, uh, in causing the neurodegenerative disease, and especially he was looking at uh, A-beta and tau. So I think that it was a nice way to bring together what we learned from the genome-wide study and these new avenues of research and to show how people are starting studying them and how people are starting developing drug discovery strategy to target this new potential pathway. So that, for me, was encouraging. Again, it's a sign of hope that we are going to make breakthrough. Fantastic. Thank you, Sarah. And, and we should add, I mean, obviously, I'm going to go around and ask other people the same, uh, everybody else the same question now. But if you're out there and you're working on, you know, if you're working in similar fields here, we're always very happy to share blogs and posts through our yeah. website. Please do comment on the podcast and share your own work, too, because I think, you know, one of our roles that, uh, and one of our aims of the website has been to encourage more collaboration, particularly across people from different countries and work in different areas. So please do, if this is a field you're interested in as well, share and, and let us know. Uh, how about you, Astrid? Um, yeah, actually this afternoon I saw a session on um, vascular contributions to dementia. Um, I actually come from uh, the field of vascular epidemiology and so um, I was really interested to, um, and that vascular dementia and vascular um, pathology is really important uh, in um, the population that I uh, study, and so I was really interested to see some talks on that. Um, and back to this blood biomarker, I was really <laughs> excited to see a talk that um, was showing really neatly 
that um, neurofilament heavy chain was um, strongly correlated to small vessel injury um, and could potentially differentiate from neurofilament light chain, which is strongly correlated to um, neurodegenerative mm -hmm. and Alzheimer's disease. And so I thought it would be neat if you can measure both of those and use them to kind of split apart vascular and Alzheimer's dementias, which of course have a lot of um, overlap. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, but all of the talks in that session were great. Um, that talk was given by Atticus Hainsworth, who I think might be oh, yes. um, definitely UK. Uh, yes, it's UCL. Yes. Yeah. And, um, and it was done the... by Adam, and I didn't catch his last name, but he was a medical student um, and is apparently giving his uh, exams right now to <laughs> graduate. So I <laughs> was unable to attend um, for a good reason. Um, and this morning I saw a neat talk uh, in an area that I know much less about by Zachary Miller from UCSF, and that was um, on neurodevelop neurodevelopmental and environmental um, uh, sort of factors related to age of onset of Alzheimer's disease and um, separating... Did you talk about air pollution? Um, I don't think air pollution. It was more sort of um, person factors. Uh -huh. So... Um, handedness and education and a number of different uh, personal characteristics. But um, I think that there were a lot of different things that he was looking at, um, but different factors that distinguish early onset Alzheimer's from late onset. Um, and he was suggesting that um, early onset could even be defined as uh, younger than 70 rather than younger than 65, because the younger than 70 group has characteristics that are more alike than, you know, um, the older than 70 and that that might be a better, you know, um, definition. And if that's the case, then should we go back and, you know, reconsider um, other early onset, late onset, you know, studies that have been done? Because, of course, that would change, you know, a, a number of trials and studies. Well, and this is interesting because in the UK, there's been a, a big push from government to improve early diagnosis rates and and it has had an you know it's had an impact I think the diagnosis rates are over 65 percent over 65 percent now and whereas we used to see people get their diagnosis in their early 70s having lived with symptoms for a very long time before they went to a doctor's they encourage you know the works of the charities and government and doctors GPs encouraging people to come and talk to them about memory problems we have seen diagnosis move into more like late 60s now yeah uh, well it seems so like the, the pathologic course might be different from people that have that earlier mm. onset that um they might be more characterized by he said left-handedness which i thought was very disturbing because i'm left-handed um people wow is that a, is being left-handed a risk <laughs> being factor left-handed is <laughs> maybe a risk factor <laughs> Um, having seizure, um, autoimmune, and non-amnestic are characteristics that maybe define early onset, whereas late onset is characterized by more traditional risk factors that I think we're all familiar with, like hypertension, um, diabetes, cholesterol, you know, obviously age. Um, yeah. And so it, I thought it was a really interesting talk. Um, you know, I'd like to, I hope the paper comes out soon so I can no, that's good. And I think read it over and really absorb it. We, we've said this before. I think what's fascinating about this conference is, is there's so many different topics going on at all at the same time. So there's always something for everybody, no matter what your particular interest is. Uh, Re. 
Uh, yeah, so I'll just briefly touch on two areas that I found really interesting today. Um, so I went to the dementia care session. Um, and what I found really interesting about that was there was kind of opened up a discussion about decision making and people with dementia and how they can be involved in their own decision making or what happens if they're not involved in their own decision making and how caregivers kind of um, treat that or affect that. And there was quite an interesting talk as well on how the caregiver management strategy so in that some people are very active caregivers and really like get up and go caregivers other people are quite critical caregivers who are maybe a bit more frustrated and more likely to tell a person that they're doing something wrong rather than letting them try to figure out how to do it right um how those different management techniques can affect the clinical information that people get so basically people who are more critical caregivers will give lower activity of daily living scores for a person with dementia than a person who's kind of more active and might be more willing to allow the person to take the time to do the thing by themselves. So I thought that was interesting kind of thing that we should be thinking about in the research as well, that kind of subjective yeah, yeah, aspect yeah. and also how we could try to maybe facilitate caregiving to, um, to help people live the best lives so that they can live. Um, I also went to a really good talk by um, Kia Young today, who's looking at postural, uh, postural, um, looking at PCA. Um, yeah, that is postural cortical atrophy. Um, so he is a UCL research fellow who I think is funded by the Alzheimer's Society. And there was two things that I liked about this talk. The first was that he was looking at PCA, which I think is an under-researched mm -hmm. area of dementia. But he also was looking at how their visual-perceptual problems kind of shape their functional capacity. And so he did some kinds of abstract testing. The one that I was particularly interested in was when he looked at their balance problems in... Um, relationship to when they were using visual information and when they weren't using visual information as in they had their eyes shut or they had something masking their eyes and he found that when they weren't using visual information their balance looked pretty similar to that of controls and that of people with typical Alzheimer's disease uh, but when they were using visual information they didn't seem to be interpreting or using that information to help maintain their balance so their balance looked much worse than um, controls or people with typical Alzheimer's disease and all that though that finding might seem a bit abstract he showed this great video to kind of pull it all together at the end where he um, looked at a person with PCA trying to sit down on a chair and it's a video of the person trying to sit on the armrest and they can't understand where it is in space that they need to be sitting down and so they're struggling to get into the chair and it just shows how that non-understanding of visual and sensory information is impacting their functional ability to carry out just normal activities of daily living mm. that they might otherwise have been able to carry out. So I thought that was a really interesting talk and I thought that the way that he he pulled it together from the science right back into the clinical translation of that was There's excellent. a lot of PCA research at UCL. Um, yeah. Sebastian Critch does a lot there and Anna Volkmer, who's one of our regular contributors in terms of podcasts and blogs, um, she's a speech and language therapist and I know that uh, uh, the it's an PCA has been, yeah. been there. They've had um, groups before and I, um, they've got some particular kind of panels and things and support group that I think um, Chris Hard is involved with as well, who's hosted some of our podcast in the past um, and getting evidence because I think for a long time they, they as far as I understand it they've known what interventions particularly environmental ones could help people with PCA but they've been working quite hard on getting the evidence to support that that you know things like moving patterns and introducing contrast between between toilet seats and bathrooms and things like that can help.
simple. Yeah, mostly things. Uh, Absolutely. Um, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. Uh, we're at 43 minutes, <laughs> but thank you very much. Have you all got plans for this evening? There's the I Start uh, membership yeah. drinks this evening. We, do you know what we haven't? I had on the list a whole bunch of other things because we've had so many. There were the ECR. There was the ECR coaching breakfast this morning, and there's been training sessions for people. In fact, as we look around the room, there's a big slide behind us that says common causes of rejection and i know that they've been looking at they also writing dementia gave a give a talk for uh, two hours on why you might get rejected from a journal <laughs> we should we'll read out what the science says it says uninteresting research question inadequate methods data does not support conclusions analysis does not adequately address the research question over interpretation and articles not matched to the journal so just take on board that for anybody we, we don't need to come we're just going to read the slide that's in this room that we've we found to do the talk so thank you very much to all our panelists uh, uh sarah astrid and re for joining us today um enjoy your evenings uh, you're all uh, do you know what? i'm just going to say you're all on social media but uh, having read Astr uh, your profile you're not are you well i'm on linkedin you're on linkedin i'm afraid of twitter it seems too <laughs> political <laughs> It's fine. So we will uh, share this via social media as well, so yeah. you can pick up all those names. So thank you very much. Uh, it's time to end today's podcast. Um, please remember to subscribe and leave a review on our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. Tell your friends and colleagues, um, and please do come back tomorrow to listen to day three when we've got a, a whole new panel talking about what we've learned from there. So thank you very much with everybody for sharing your, your reflections on the conference. You can also see uh, what else is going on on Twitter using the hashtag AAIC19. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. This was a podcast brought to you by Dementia Researcher. Everything you need in one place. Register today at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk.